Please turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter in the Old Testament, only six verses long. Malachi chapter 4. I am sorry, in some respects, though I trust the providence of God completely, that there is a chapter division between verse 18 of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. The original writers of Scripture did not put any such thing in there. They weren't there for 1,500 years. And so don't be confused by there being a chapter 4 mark between chapters 3 and 4 because it continues with a lesson that began in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger. And that was John the Baptist. And that was at 3-1. And so what we have here from 3-1 to 4-6 is John the Baptist coming before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the judgment that would fall upon the nation of Israel, and especially the city of Jerusalem, by God's judgment on them for crucifying His Son. We have already seen some of that judgment in warning in chapter 3. We have seen some of it in the last two verses of chapter 3 that we finished with earlier this morning. Now we come to chapter 4. And we want to understand that it's just a run-on explaining that there's going to be a need for him having jewels and sparing some in verses 17 and 18 because he's going to pour out his wrath on the rest. Four. Four is a coordinating conjunction tying in chapter 4 with chapter 3. Four. Behold. The day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And so ends the Old Testament. A warning to Israel, the church of the Old Testament, that a day of reckoning is coming. This chapter, as chapter 3, is Almighty God sending John the Baptist to precede the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which would precede the destruction of that nation and its city, and it would be done with fiery judgment. He would burn up their city, which he did in 70 A.D., it, I keep saying 70 A.D. I want you to remember that in 70 A.D. a great event took place. Right. Siege was, lit, was laid to that city in the spring and they made a frontal assault on it in the fall and they took that city and they razed it to the ground. They destroyed it. They burned up the temple. They tore apart every stone. There were not left two stones still attached to each other. They dug up the foundations. They tore that hilltop to shreds in God's judgment upon the people that crucified 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was prophesied in this last little chapter of the Old Testament. And Malachi begs them to go back and remember the law of Moses because if they would have kept the law of Moses, it wouldn't have happened. But he warned them that John the Baptist would come and if they would hear him, it wouldn't happen. But they didn't hear John the Baptist. It didn't matter that a number went out and were baptized of John because the rest of the nation didn't. They rejected John the Baptist and so the curse fell upon them. The Lord smote the earth, that is the Israelite earth, with a curse. How do you know it's the Israelite earth? Well, if you don't know the rest of your Bible, that the word earth and world is used that way, then just go to the first verse of this little book and it tells you what's under consideration. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So when it says earth, it's only got one section of the earth under consideration. Israel. It is a shame, it is a pity, that so many think that Malachi chapter 4 is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is a shame and it is a pity that many think Malachi chapter 3 is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But this is the first coming and there isn't a double fulfillment because there's nothing in it that applies to the second coming. Unless you want to say fire, that's just too small. You know, there's fire all through the Bible. Fire came down and burned up Nadab and Abihu. Should we judge from that that it has a double fulfillment about the second coming of Jesus Christ because God burned up Nadab and Abihu? No. I believe in double fulfillments where double fulfillments are obvious and where the New Testament tells me there's a double fulfillment. But when I don't see that, I couldn't care less about your double fulfillment. If Can we draw a principle from Malachi chapter 4 that will help us think in light of Christ's second coming? Yes, we can, but that is not a double fulfillment. I do not want to take the lesson of Malachi 3 or 4 and dilute it with ridiculous double fulfillments about His second coming. I want the full force and the weight of what Malachi intended, what the Holy Spirit designed upon that nation for their wickedness. And for you to see it and to feel it and to understand it so that you don't get waylaid by misinterpretations of these verses and words. Lord, help us to that end. Verse 1, For behold, that 4 ties us into verse 18, 17, and 16, and so forth of chapter 3, that there's a judgment that is going to come against the wicked, so that there will be shown a difference between the righteous and the wicked. In verse 13, the stout wicked have spoken out against the Lord. In verse 14, they've said it's vain to serve God. And there's no profit to it. In verse 15, they have called the proud happy. And those that work wickedness are promoted, and those that tempt God are even delivered. And then verses 17 and 18 describe a judgment coming in which you would be able to discern that God takes care of the righteous, but God has judged the wicked. There's going to be some spared, which implies that there's going to be others that are not spared. The behold here is to get their attention. To think about this coming judgment, just like this word has been used in chapter 2 and verse 3. Behold, I will corrupt your seed. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall suddenly come to his temple. And chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. There are a number of beholds to get the readers and the hearers' attention about the warning from Malachi. In this first verse, Notice the words burn, 
oven, stubble, burn, and root. Do those words remind you of any other place in the Bible? You read it last night, I hope. Matthew chapter 3, because John the Baptist's warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came to his baptism used those words. As John described the judgment that was going to fall on that generation, he called them a generation of vipers because they were snakes. The Jewish religious leaders were snakes. They crucified the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. They rejected God. They had a timed prophecy from Daniel chapter 9 that told them exactly when the Messiah would come. They had Malachi chapters 3 and 4 that said John the Baptist would look like Elijah. Did Jews know what Elijah looked like? Did you know that in the Bible, a king said, what does the man look like? And they said, well, he's got a leather girdle on. It's Elijah the Tishbite. See, everybody knew what he looked like. And here comes John wearing the clothing of Elijah the Tishbite. They don't recognize him. They don't recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. Though they have a timed prophecy, they're snakes. Jesus and John called them that. Jesus called them serpents. John called them vipers. Those words, burn, oven, stubble, burn, and root. Notice that our prophet Malachi in that first verse says, and all the proud... Where is he pulling that word, all the proud? He's pulling it from verse 15 of chapter 3, where that atheistical generation had said that now we call the proud happy. See, the proud are living happy lives. And so Malachi is now going to reverse that. Malachi is giving God's word to that nation. You may think that the proud are getting away with their pride. You may think that the proud are happy people. I'm going to burn up the proud. He's pulling that from verse 15. Look at the next clause. And all that do wickedly. Where is he getting that from? Same verse. Where it says in the middle of verse 15, Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. They're advanced. They're promoted. And so Malachi comes along and says, That's what you think. That is the idiotic perspective of sinners who only measure short-term circumstances without seeing the big picture of God's righteousness and God's wrath burning in heaven only being held back by His long-suffering. But His long-suffering doesn't hold it back forever. It's long-suffering, not forever-suffering. It's only long-suffering. And it was going to fall on these people. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. It was a wipeout of the nation of the Jews in 70 A.D. by the armies of the Romans. It would leave them neither root nor branch. Israel disappeared from the face of the earth. There were a few remnant Jews scattered abroad as slaves in foreign nations, but the nation disappeared and the city was a pile of rubble. Just like John had said, in case you didn't read it last night, very quickly, look at Matthew chapter 3. It will help us through these six verses. We don't have very much time today, but I'm going to take some of it. I want you to understand these things. I want you to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand fulfilled prophecy. I want you to appreciate the glory and power of God to bring about judgment upon His enemies. I want us to be humbled that we will confess our sins and repent before this same God. Matthew chapter 3, 
Verse 1 says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice, there's coming wrath. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is the baptism of fire. It is a fiery judgment falling upon the Jews, including the religious leaders that put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. This is not difficult. This is not complicated. It's only missed by those who want to protect the Jews because they preach Jewish fables. It's only missed by those who want to find everything pointing to the second coming instead of the fulfilled prophecies that build up our faith and set the Lord Jesus Christ up as the Lord of glory. They don't even know anything about what happened in 70 A.D. They don't know about all the prophecies that Jesus Christ gave that were perfectly and meticulously fulfilled. He is the high king of heaven. When the Bible says he's the blessed and only potentate, when the Bible describes him as sitting on a white horse, sitting on the throne of David, wielding a scepter of righteousness, we see that and understand that because we understand things that most do not understand today because they have turned their ears away from hearing the truth and are turned into fables and entertainment. They want storytelling. They want anecdotes. They want jokes. They want a praise band instead of hearing the Word of God explained to them. The religious leaders came out to John the Baptist. He called them a generation of vipers because in all the descriptions that are given, Mark chapter 13, Luke 21, Luke 19, Matthew 24, they are all limited to that generation, that 40-year period of time of fathers and sons existing together. All these things shall come to pass on this generation. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you hypocrites out here? Why are you vipers out here for my baptism? Who's told you about the wrath that's coming? Somebody will say, well, there's wrath coming in the great day of judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ, of course. And why did you bring that up? What does that have to do with Matthew chapter 3? Would you please help me? There isn't the slightest indication, nor reference, nor indirect reference, nor indirect association with the second coming of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. There is nothing there of the second coming. It is a warning to that generation. How much plainer can he possibly be? You say, well, I'd like to see that proven somewhere else in the Bible. Then turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me so that I can help you see it. I believe in preaching the second coming where the second coming is taught. I believe in preaching the first coming when the first coming is taught. 
I believe in preaching the great day of judgment and the destruction of this universe by fire from God Himself when that is the subject of the place. But when it is the burning up of Jerusalem, I'm going to stick with that and I'm not going to confuse the two to water down the Word of God and leave God's children confused and not knowing whether we're coming or going. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul. It's not John. It's Paul. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For ye, brethren, you Gentiles there in Macedonia of Greece, ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, middle of the verse. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Unquenchable fire is the wrath to the uttermost. The wrath is come, not the wrath shall come. See, I'm not going to preach. Why would anybody want me to preach the wrath that shall come when the Holy Spirit said the wrath that is come? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to dilute the Word of God by worrying about the second coming in a passage that is describing the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? And thus is your pastor. I'm not going to play with the Word of God like they play with it. Those men don't have a clue about half the New Testament. That I'm talking about the conservative. They, they are ridiculously ignorant of things that are so simple to see. These are the Jews that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and the wrath of God is come. Not shall come, is come to the uttermost because Paul was writing this about 60 AD as that fury of Rome against the Jews was building and the Jewish revolt was about to begin in just a couple of years. And it's the same thing as John was preaching over in Matthew chapter 3. If you want an in-depth preaching on this subject covering so many of the verses that deal with this subject, it's called The Witness of 70 A.D., preached a number of years ago, and it's on our website. But back in Matthew chapter 3, you know, those Jews were going to make claim that Abraham was their father, and there's no way that God could judge them. And, And John told them that, listen, God could make sons of children of Abraham from stones. He certainly doesn't need you. And now look at verse 10. And now also the axe is laid. Would somebody tell me approximately what time frame that is? And now the axe is laid. The word now, what does the word now mean to you? 2,000 years later, when it says is laid, what does that mean to you? Oh, and now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He mentions the baptism with fire. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is what took place in the day of Pentecost. God the Father gave to him the promise of the Spirit, and Jesus Christ in turn bestowed it upon his apostles. That was the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and 40 years later, the baptism was with fire when he burned up that city and their nation. And his fan is in his hand. Whose fan is in his hand? Not that it shall be in his hand, or will be in his hand, but it is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, which is the stubble of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's go back to Malachi 4. There's so many places of Scripture that we could turn to, but uh, we don't have time for that. This destruction 
of the Jews and Israel and Jerusalem by enemies was prophesied as early as Deuteronomy chapter 28. When in Deuteronomy chapter 28 in verse 68, just one of the verses from that chapter, it says this about the coming judgment upon those people. 28.68 says, And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships. By the way whereof I spake unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. When was that fulfilled? When were Jews hauled by ships back to Egypt and sold for slaves, and there was such an influx of them that no one wanted to buy them, that the price fell for Jewish slaves. <coughs> when did that happen? Did the Philistines do that? Did Pharaoh rise from the Red Sea? Did Nebuchadnezzar take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and put them on a ship and send them to Egypt? Who took the few that were left from Jerusalem and put them on ships and sold them for slaves? The Romans. The Romans. I have limited time. I want you to never forget things that God has shown us that the rest of this world wants to defy and reject because of their ignorance and obsession with the second coming. There's a whole lot more in the Bible than just the second coming. Of course I'm looking forward to the second coming. Of course that's going to be a great reversal of fortune for us Gentiles. But when, we're re when we are reading Malachi chapter 4, there's nothing in it about Gentiles. Except verse 2. And even that's not really about Gentiles. Malachi chapter 4. Oh Lord, thank you for showing us these things. John the Baptist said the axe is now laid unto the root of the trees. Jesus promised that Jerusalem would be under Gentile dominion until the, the times of the Gentiles was fulfilled. And it's not fulfilled yet, and it's still under Gentile dominion. James concluded the rebuilding of David's house was with us Gentiles, we find over in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem that was in Palestine was rejected by God. The Jerusalem that was above was is the Jerusalem that matters now in the New Testament. Look at, look at an example in the Bible where we need to understand how important this event is. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It, it, it is said by ministers that Hebrews chapter 6 is the most difficult passage in the Bible to rightly interpret. Chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. I like to remind them, and I like to remind you when that is said or, or heard, that there are three other passages in Hebrews that are just as difficult as chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. They are Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, and Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. But let's go to Hebrews 10, verse 26. This scares, this scares Christians to death when they don't understand it. And I want to show you how important it is for us to understand the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming in judgment on that generation that crucified Him so that He could fulfill all the prophecies that He made, John made, and the parables that He told about what was going to happen to those men that crucified the heir of the vineyard. Right. Right. Hebrews 10.26 For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That is a scary verse. If you sin willfully after you know the truth, 
There isn't any sacrifice for your sin. It's curtains for you. Many of God's children have been terrified by this verse because they all are honest enough to admit that they have sinned presumptuously, which means to sin willfully after hearing the truth. But let's just keep reading and see if we can figure out what it's talking about by just letting the context guide us. Verse 27, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? And hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Two testaments are being compared here. First testament is that if you disobeyed what Moses commanded, then you died without mercy under two or three witnesses. But how much sore punishment are you going to be worthy of if you rebelled against the Son of God? Now, is this epistle written to Gentiles in the 21st century, or is this epistle written to Hebrews in the 1st century? Yes. It's written to Hebrews in the 1st century. This is making a comparison to Hebrew Christians that if they tied themselves back in again by backsliding away from their Christianity, their profession of faith, their baptism, by going back to Moses, by rebelling against the Son of God, by counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, they would be judged more ferociously than God had judged those who rebelled against Moses. If we back up to verse 25, it says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together..." as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. What day can you see approaching? When you're in 55 A.D. or 60 A.D. and the Apostle Paul is writing Hebrew Christians. What day was approaching? Have you ever heard words like this? Listen very carefully. Have you ever heard words like this when you're wondering about the day that's approaching in Hebrews 10.25? Have you ever heard this? For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud and yea and all that do wickedly shall be stubble and the day that cometh shall burn them up. There was a day coming against the Jewish nation. And for those Jews that backslid from their profession of faith in Jesus Christ and went back to Moses' system were going to put themselves under the judgment of God and His curse on those Jews. Because by doing so, they are crucifying the Son of God afresh and counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing by going back to animal blood. You are not even capable of getting yourself into Hebrews 10, 26-31. It is not talking about a presumptuous sin of being told not to take cookies out of the cookie jar in your mommy's kitchen and you did it anyway even though you had received the knowledge of the truth that you ought to obey mommy. And you willfully went and took cookies out of the cookie jar. This is not talking about that. This is talking about the issue that Paul dealt with this entire book of Hebrews, and that was to warn Hebrew Christians not to backslide and go back against the blood of Christ. The whole epistle's about that. Back to Malachi chapter 4. The whole, the whole Bible 
comes together when we understand this great event of the sovereign judgment of God upon his enemies, even though it was his church. Jesus had said to the Pharisees of his day, if you fall on me, you'll be broken. But if I fall on you, I will grind you to powder. And the Roman armies ground that city to powder of Jews. He wasn't speaking to Gentiles. When he ground the Jews to powder, he was going to take his vineyard and give it to the Gentiles. When did that take place? In the ministry of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles is when it took place. And so we have Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. And oh, the tree was cut down and Gentiles were given the vineyard and Gentiles have offered up from every nation tribute and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ for He is worthy. Amen. Verse 2, But unto you that fear my name. Now remember, we have this distinction made in verses 13 through 18. There's two categories. There is the wicked and then there are those that fear my name. And so the wicked are in verse 1 and those that fear my name, which are in verse 16, of chapter 3, they're in verse 2. So Malachi 4.1 is about the wicked of Malachi 3, 13 through 18. And verse 2 of Malachi 4 is about those that fear God's name from verse 16 of chapter 3. For unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. There's so many metaphors in that verse, but they're wonderful metaphors. And it was God's mercy and grace toward the Jews that He had chosen out of that nation and preserved them from the wrath that fell by the Roman legions upon that city. Because God had counted them His jewels. He had counted them His own. He preserved them. He sent Jesus Christ who told them, when you see this city encompassed with armies, get out and flee to the mountains for the desolation thereof is nigh. Now that's about as simple as language can ever make something. It has nothing to do with the second coming. Because it says that women, you don't want to be pregnant when it happens. And women, you don't want to be nursing when it happens. Now can somebody tell me why you don't want to be nursing when Jesus comes the second time? I think that'd be... I'm not a woman. I shouldn't say anything. I think it'd be pretty nice to be nursing a baby and have Jesus come. But now what if you were in the city of Jerusalem and you realize that the desolation of it was about to take place by God's judgment, that Malachi 3 and 4 and Matthew 3, John the Baptist, and all the prophecies of Jesus were about to be fulfilled. And he said, when you see that about to take place, get out of the city and flee to the mountains. Then it makes sense, doesn't it? If it's 70 AD that is in mind in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all talk about fleeing to the mountains of Judea. It's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. Every verse of Scripture, every verse, one at a time, that God shows us understanding of, it is a blessing. And I love Him for His kindness and mercy to us. We don't make it a hobby horse in this church. I want to pound it right now because it may be a while before I preach on it again. And I I want to save all of you from ignorant Christianity. Verse 2, was the mercy of the Lord toward his jewels and those that were his. The metaphors, the sun. Do you know how much you depend on the sun? Do you know how warm and wonderful the sun is? Especially after winter, especially after real ice and real snow, how wonderful the sun is. The sun, capital S. You say, I don't like that. I don't think we should have a day called Sunday. It doesn't bother me a bit. 
The Seventh-day Adventists can rail on us all they want. I like Sunday. It's the day I worship the Son. The Son of Righteousness. That we just sang about in that song. Thank That was a great song. Oh, that song preached a sermon. The Son of Righteousness. And it went on to say with healing in His wings. But unto you that fear my name, the Son... Now, righteousness is no metaphor. Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ is right and fair and just. And He came to punish the wicked, but He came to save His own sheep. So we have the Son of Righteousness, then we have healing. And Jesus Christ did come and heal, but He also embraced and bound up those that were wounded in heart. I mean, He healed all kinds of wounds. You know, when we we find the word healing, we tend to think of someone that was lame, lying on their bed, and Him jumping up and taking up His bed and walking. But Isaiah 61 and verse 1 describes another kind of healing. He comes and binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted. He did all of that. Oh, for those that were mourning and grieving for their sins and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ came and comforted them. Glory to the Lord Jesus Christ of what He did at His first coming. His first coming. Healing in His wings. Wings in the Bible are that protective body part of a mother bird protecting her young. And so they were protected. And there was healing and embracing of them and protecting of them and carrying them away from their troubles and delivering them. And then they shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Young calves kept in a stall where they can't run off all their weight and that are fed well prosper. It's called veal. When they're kept in a stall and fed, they grow fast. And so this is a metaphor for prosperous, successful, God-blessed living. And that's what happened to those that were the jewels of God. Verse 3, And ye shall tread down the wicked. Now see, these that fear the Lord were going to tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Those Christians that fled from the city of Jerusalem and fled across the Jordan River and stayed in the city of Pella came back. What was left? Nothing. The city was leveled to the ground and had been burned. And they were nothing but ashes under their feet. Because God had made a huge difference. Remember the people had said, it's vain to serve the Lord. God doesn't make any difference. The proud, they're happy. Those that do wickedly, they're set up. Those that tempt God, they're even delivered. It's vain to serve the Lord. We've kept your ordinance. We've walked in your ways. And look what it's got us. Oh, those were stout words against the Lord. But did the Lord have an answer for them? His answer is Titus Vespasian Caesar. And do you know what? There's still an arch of Titus in Rome to this day. Just go home to your little Google search box and type in Arch of Titus so that you can see that monument made in Rome that has pictures of Jewish slaves and the candelabra of the Jewish temple being drugged by Jewish slaves to their Roman captors in chains through the streets of Rome. Praise God for a lasting monument to His prophecy and to what happens to men who crucified the Lord of glory. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, Isn't that neat how the Lord sticks this in right at the very end of the Old Testament? He brings in the prophet that wrote the first books of the Old Testament. It's pretty. I think it's kind of neat. Malachi, the last prophet, brings in the first prophet, 
ties the whole Old Testament together. And notice this little warning, so simple. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. If you want to know how to avert this judgment that's coming, if you want to know how to please God, you've had it all along. You've had it for 1,200 years. You've had the law of Moses, my servant. Just keep his law, keep his statutes and his judgments, and everything will be well, just like it says in the law of Moses. Does it say in the law of Moses over and over again, if ye will do this, then I will bless you, but if ye will not, then I will curse you? Over and over. All they had to do was keep the law of Moses. Now, thankfully, the Old Testament is three-quarters or four-fifths of our Bible. All we've got to do is keep the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all will be well with us. We don't earn our way into heaven, but it sure is the evidence of eternal life. And I'm glad to know that on the other side of the Atlantic pond, there is a man preaching today that the evidence of eternal life is performance, not profession. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Two things that we need to ask and answer. Who's Elijah the prophet? I know you know it, but it's so plain. Honestly, assessing the whole Bible, there's 31,101 verses, there's 1,189 chapters, there's 66 books. This is the simplest prophecy in the Bible. This right here is the simplest prophecy in the whole Bible. Look at Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Some of you already know this, and some of you have been over this so many times. But listen, repetition is the way to keep things in a head so that they won't run away and they won't get lost in a bad filing system. you got to pull them up to the front. Who in the world is Elijah the prophet? It is unbelievable what men say. Men that I appreciate, I'm talking about conservative commentators, cannot figure out the simplest prophecy in the Bible. But it shouldn't surprise me. Because except for John Gill, they're all baby-sprinkling heretics, they can't figure out baptism, so it shouldn't surprise me. Because from a doctrinal standpoint, the simplest doctrine is that baptism has to be by immersion of believers only. That's the simplest doctrine in the Bible. And see, God's given us, the people of God, his little scattered remnant of ignoramus babes. He's given us little keys like this in the Bible that comfort us. Why do I need to worry about some theologian who's got a couple doctorate degrees when he can't even figure out the doctrine of baptism. Why do I need to worry about somebody that wants to write a movie series called Left Behind when they can't even figure out Elijah the prophet? These are little comforts from the Lord to us. They comfort me. They do more than comfort me. They get me pretty excited and pretty angry. And I hope they do the same to you. Who is Elijah the prophet? And there isn't a double fulfillment, and there's not a triple fulfillment. Who is Elijah the prophet? From Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist because John has sent to Jesus to ask him if he was the one that was to come. Jesus in verse 11 says, Among them that are born of women, John the Baptist is the greatest. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven was in place, and the violent were taking it by force in the days of John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it. Now do I have a church full of people that will receive it? If ye will receive it, this is 
Elias, which was for to come. And that's how Elijah is spelled and pronounced when it comes from Hebrew into Greek into English. This is Elijah. Jesus said, if ye will receive it. Why do most men who claim to follow Christ and love the Bible and want to write commentaries on every verse of the Bible want to question the identity of Elijah the prophet from Malachi 4.5? If ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. See, I will send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 15, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And there we have our answer. They don't have ears to hear. They can't even figure out baptism. Do you understand this? Malachi, Elijah the prophet from Malachi 4 or 5 is absolutely, without a doubt, John the Baptist. Jesus didn't say it's partially John the Baptist. And then I'm going to send Enoch and Elijah, the two witnesses from Revelation 13. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, you know, the Lord said in one place, let every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So here we go for number two. Peter, James, and John have been in the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and there appeared to them there Moses and Elijah. Mm -hmm. And so when they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples have a question. Verse 10, his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Wait a minute. We just saw Elijah, and the scribes are teaching that Elijah has to come back first. What's going on? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist and of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Oh, no. Uh, They understood he he was preaching about John the Baptist. This is... uh, Lord, we are not haughty, nor will we exercise ourselves in matters too high for us. But this is not one of them. This matter is not too high for us. Who is Elijah the prophet? John the Baptist. Period. Next question. Well, why is he called Elijah the prophet? Why is he called that by Malachi in 4-5? Why did God call him Elijah the prophet? Because according to Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, when the angel told Zacharias about the son his wife Elizabeth was going to have, that angel said he shall come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was like Elijah in his pulpit manner. Okay, someone will say, why when the Jews came out to Judea, the Jewish leadership in John chapter 1 and verse 21 came out to the Jordan River and asked John, art thou Elias? Why did he tell them no? Because he wasn't Elias. Oh, oh Lord, I love your word. Isn't that neat? He wasn't Elias. He was John. But he was in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah the prophet. But he wasn't Elijah. Say, why did God do that and put it in the Bible like that? Just so that those people that were laughing about would find enough rope to hang themselves. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? The destruction of Jerusalem. It's not the second coming. 
There's nothing about the second coming. There's nothing about Gentiles here. Are words like the great and dreadful day of the Lord used of other events that took place even before this one that were simply cities being swallowed up by armies? Oh yes, 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 yes. Over and over and over again. Repeatedly. Peter on the day of Pentecost refers to this day. He says two things um, in his sermon. Well, there's more than two things, but I'm limiting it to two. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, he's quoting from Joel, and he says, God's going to show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. The sun's going to be turned into darkness. The moon's going to be turned into blood. And people say, well, that hasn't happened yet, so that prophecy hasn't happened. Peter said that prophecy was being fulfilled right then, right then, that day in Jerusalem. Because those were spiritual similitudes. They were not to be understood literally. That was the upturning and... an upheaval of the religious world where fishermen were out preaching the scribes and the Pharisees by God's Spirit being upon them. Peter said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he's quoting from Joel and he comes to verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord... I want verse 20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Here it's called the great and notable day of the Lord, right after what happened at Pentecost. Well, what happened after Pentecost? The destruction of the Jews in 70 A.D. What else did Peter say on that day? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, after that long sermon that's been recorded, we have this interesting verse, verse 40. And with many other words, with many other words, did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. What's another word for untoward? Contrary. Oh, that's the word that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that they are contrary to all men. They were an untoward generation. They were untoward toward God. They were untoward toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They were untoward toward His apostles. Note, people just run over that verse with many other words. Peter spent a great deal of time warning them to save themselves from that untoward generation because that generation of vipers, God was going to burn up. And so Peter was reminding them, when you see this city encompassed with armies, get out of it. Wrath has come upon this nation. You know, it totally fit with what he had preached from Psalm 110, that the Lord hath made him both Lord and Christ. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that fact assuredly. Malachi 4 or 5, there's two questions that we can ask and answer so easily. Who is Elijah the prophet? It is John the Baptist. What is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? It was the destruction of Jerusalem. Lord, we thank Thee. And what we don't see, we want to see. And what we see incorrectly, we'll repudiate. But we thank Thee for everything that we see. And we are truly the babes of Your kingdom. But we are thankful for the understanding you've given us, Lord of heaven and earth. And we love it, and we will defend it. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. He wasn't able to do it, because the nation was rebellious. Did he, did he bring some to repentance? Indeed. But the nation as a whole? No. The nation didn't protect him from Herod. The nation didn't protect the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the nation chased the apostles around, killed the apostles. You know, the important part of this verse that we can draw an application from for us is that God values our relationships very highly. When this verse is quoted in Luke 1.17, He shall go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers, so forth. This is quoted in Luke chapter 1 when the angel was speaking to Zacharias, the father of John. It says to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I've preached this before. And I want to say it again right now. If you want to be a people prepared for the Lord, if you want to be a person prepared for the Lord, you will make sure all your relationships are right in the sight of God. Right. Because here we are in the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament that is going to pronounce a curse upon this nation. And when God gets right down to the last verse and what He's going to send this special messenger for, it is to get relationships back together. And this specific relationship is fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers. That's the, that's the specific example. Now John the Baptist preached much more than that. In Luke chapter 3, the soldiers came and said to John, what should we do? And he said, do violence to no man and be content with your wages. He had a message for every segment of society. But when the Lord wants to summarize the preaching of John the Baptist, it's right here. And you know what? Relationships are something that we work with every single day. We struggle with every single day. It's where our pride comes into play the most. It's where our tongues are the loosest when we are at home with our own. And brethren, I want to tell you, this is our own relationships and it's just an indirect lesson that we better remind ourselves of. And when we read a passage like this and we're thinking about the smoke and the, the, the smoke and the fire going up from the city of Jerusalem, we better remember that there's a God in heaven that we're all going to give an account of our lives to and He's going to ask us about our relationships. And let's make sure that they are as good as they possibly can be. I hope that anyone in here could stand and preach Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 that you could just say these last six verses of Malachi are about the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. Those that were wicked and atheistical in their thinking that had defied God in chapter 3, God was going to burn up. They crucified the Lord of glory. God took his vineyard or his kingdom, either word works, away from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles and burned up their city in the most horrific destruction the world has ever seen. I sent you a link yesterday that I hope you might take a peek at. It's a BBC production. It's entirely historical. It's one hour long. It's a video under one of my little tiny links. I didn't say picture time, children, but it's there under one of my little links. It's a one-hour BBC special on the destruction of Jerusalem, and it's an animated, it's a pretty decent little presentation. It doesn't say anything about the Bible. It doesn't say anything about Jesus. It doesn't say anything about prophecy. But if you understand the things that I've taught you over the years, when you watch it, you are moved by the fact that God's judgment was on that people. I'd encourage you to consider it. Now let me talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ for a minute. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Oh, what a metaphorical picture of the Lord of glory. The Son... The sun is such a powerful thing in our lives in the way that it drives away darkness in the morning. It drives away coldness in the spring. When it kisses your cheeks, you feel it. It goes through your clothes. It warms you. It is life-giving. It is. We are totally dependent upon it. It is glorious in beauty. And He's called the Son of Righteousness. And He arises with healing in His wings. 
He protects us. He covers us with balm. He binds up the brokenhearted. He heals all of our problems. heals us all of our, our diseases. Psalm 103, He is such a glorious, wonderful Savior that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He blesses us so abundantly. We are like young calves that have been stalled up and being fed pure grain. And we put on weight. I'm talking about spiritual weight at the moment. We put on weight because we're fat and happy in the Lord. From Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. Look at the last word of this testament. Look at the last word of this testament. Look at the last word of this book. Look at the last word of this chapter. Curse! Because as we heard this morning, they lived under a do and live covenant. Did you hear that this morning? And so they were under the curse. What's the first sentence of the next testament? What's the first sentence of the next testament? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for that? That that curse of God is not ready to fall upon us because we haven't kept all the terms of the first covenant? All the terms of that first covenant are impossible for a man to keep. Do you know what the last words of the New Testament are? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Do you know what the first recorded word that he preached in the New Testament is? It's Matthew 5.3. Blessed. Is that a difference? I'm thankful I was born on this side of the cross. I'm thankful that I don't have to kill animals on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and start over again next week. I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ was slain for me. And the Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament opens with the Lord Jesus Christ's blessing and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's the gospel of the New Testament. We've been saved from all that covenant-keeping of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for us and laid down His life a sacrifice for us. And when we shall see Him, we will see the Son of Righteousness shining in splendor and glory with healing in His wings. And we will be growing like calves of the stall for eternity. Just keep on growing. We'll just keep on growing. We'll just keep on growing because He's going to supply everything our glorified spirits and bodies desire and need. And we shall be with the Lord forever. Amen. Amen.